Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the great Christian thinkers, which means we continue our reflections into the doctors of the church of the 16th century. Aside of the 4th century, you have the most popular century for doctors of the church. I mean, consider who we have talked about up to this point. St. John of Avila, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Peter Canisius, St. John of the Cross, St. Robert Bellarmine, last week St. Lawrence of Brindisi, and this evening, we wrap up our 16th century treatment of the doctors of the church with St. Francis de Sales. It is an astounding thing to consider that all of these figures came from more or less the same time period, certainly the same century. And why? You know, why the 16th century? Well, we've made the point before. Anytime there is a decline in spirituality and rigorous study of the faith, there is on the other side of that decline going to be renewal. I mean, the 16th century, we can properly call a saint-making machine. And this evening's saint is St. Francis de Sales, who we know as the doctor of charity. Again, 36 doctors of the church, 13 of them have special titles that are tied to their unique charism. And in St. Francis de Sales, his charism, (laughs) charity. I mean, how about that? How about that, to be called the Doctor of Charity. And we will be discussing the Doctor of Charity this evening with John O'Hara. John, great to have you back with me another evening. Always good to be here, Joe. Thank you. So here we are, John, talking about St. Francis de Sales, the Doctor of Charity, another man who was defined by the time period he lived in. You know, we say the Doctor of Charity, the Doctor of Love, because of his profound insights into the nature of love. But how did he acquire that understanding? Well, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who is the love shared between the Father and the Son. Yes, but let us understand something. He was asking very specific questions, very poignant questions, questions that were coming out of the time he lived in. Why do I talk about this? Well, what was the heresy of the day in the world he lived in? Well, he lived in France at the end of the 16th century, so it was predestination. And to ask the deepest questions about predestination is to ask the deepest questions about free will, freedom itself, and the nature of God who is love. So the many insights that come from John, the doctor of charity, very much come from a historical context. We are getting to the end of the 16th century. Our saint today died in 1622, so he made it into the 17th century, and he was consecrated a bishop in 1601. Now... He was born in 1567, died in 1622, and he was born near the city of Annecy, and he was the bishop of Annecy. So, like, where is Annecy? Well, you got to go to Lake Geneva, Hmm. and then go about, I'd say, when I looked at the map, I'm going to say 75 miles south of Geneva. That's where Annecy is. So he's in that area. Also, the city of Thonon is mentioned in his life. If you know where Geneva is, on the west banks of the Lake Geneva, go about, on the southern shore, go about, I don't know, 25, 40 miles on the south side. So that's the area where he worked. And you got to remember John Calvin. 
John mm-hmm. Calvin goes to Geneva, and he makes this thing a Calvinist enclave. And a lot of Catholics left the faith and joined up with the Calvinist religion. And by the time our saint comes along, uh, he has the glorious task of trying to reconvert the fallen away Catholics. Good luck. He Mm -hmm. did pretty well. He did pretty well, John. We should just note off the top, one of the things that comes through strong in his writings is this charity in and through personal friendships. And as uh, Benedict XVI highlights, this was invaluable to his re-evangelizing, if you will, the Catholics in the Geneva area. He saw the value of charity and how charity opens up the heart anew to not only the, the beauty of the faith, but the dialogue itself. You know, yeah. so, so often in our conversations, in our apologetic conversations, John, um, they don't develop, they don't evolve because of our hardness of heart. You know, there is a, a current a Catholic apologist named Trent Horn, mm. and I've seen him on TV and I own several of his DVDs. His attitude is just like you were saying. Mm-hmm. He knows this stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. But the voice is calm. The dialogue is sincere. The conversation is complete for both sides. Can't tell you anything more about it, but it, when I see it on TV, it looks effective to me, whereas when you get to me, it's like, rah, 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 you know, yeah. I've converted no one, <laughs> yeah. by the way. So, so, yeah, yeah. When, when our apologetics is point, counterpoint, punch, counterpunch, it's not going to get anywhere. If our yeah. apologetics is about a match of wits, it's not going to get anywhere. It has to be sincere. It has to be authentic, because that is what yes. the Spirit works with, huh? Yeah. That gentleness, uh, that reverence that First Peter 3.15 talks about, yeah. those are the virtues by which truth shall pass. And for St. Francis de Sales, John, for St. Francis de Sales, it was these very virtues of gentleness and reverence and how charity leads that ultimately would bring about not only an evolution or a more developed discussion about uh, the Christian and Catholic faith, but ultimately conversion itself for many of these Calvinists, and we can say reconversion back to the Catholic Church. Well, he was born on August the 21st, 1567 at Chateau de Salle, so mm. he came from a well-to-do family, thank you. Mm-hmm. And his father was quite a to-do, <laughs> yeah. and as was his mother. Uh-huh. And he was born premature, so it took a while for him to kind of get to be the right size, Mm -hmm. but he was energetic once he got there, and his mother took over his education, and she assigned for him a tutor named the Abbe Deage. Now, I assume that is Father Deage, and his job was to stay with this kid. That's influence. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. anyway, uh, he was a bright, energetic young kid. At the age of eight, he goes to the College of Annecy, where he received his first communion, confirmation, and he dedicates his life to God. Now, at 14, he goes to the University of Paris. And there's 54 colleges there. University of Paris is, I mean, the, mm-hmm. uh, what you want to call it, the Harvard of the West, France, whatever you want to call it. It's rather stupid. But well, it, yeah, it's a big I mean, deal, yeah. sure. And it's to remember, John, that uh, the University of Paris was the first established yes, university, right? Yeah. So, you know, here we are five centuries later, and yeah. it is uh, well established. They wanted him to go to the Collège de Navarre. I don't know. That was where you would go if you were looking to promote yourself socially, and, mm-hmm. however. Mm-hmm. But he went to the uh, Collège de Clermont, which was a Jesuit school. And uh, unlike some Jesuit schools today, this was very known for piety, holiness, and thoroughness of academic education. And he excelled right off the bat. This guy mm-hmm. was a good student. And he uh, made his mark in rhetoric, philosophy, theology. And uh, there's a rhetoric again, um, mm-hmm. back from St. Augustine, who was a professor of rhetoric. He did very well. Also, to please his father, he took up dancing, fencing, 
and horseback riding. So there, there's that charity again. Wanted to mm-hmm. keep Dad mm-hmm. happy. Now, at 24, he uh, became a doctor of law from the University of Padua, and he convinced his father to let him become a priest. And on December the 18th, 1593, he was ordained a priest at the age of 26. And he goes to work for the Bishop of Annecy, a bishop named Bishop de Grenier. And Bishop de Grenier has a problem. He's lost a lot of Catholics uh, in the Geneva area, and south, his diocese goes to the south bank of the lake and down. And does anybody want to take on the task of trying to bring these people back? <laughs> and our Francis de Sales raises his hand, and he, he got the job. So he goes up there, and it's dangerous because, uh, you know, if you were a converted Calvinist, you didn't want to have these people come back. Anyway, he goes up there into the woods and stuff, and now at one point, he has to travel around, and he was attacked by wolves, and he climbs a tree, and he spends overnight in a tree while the wolves are hungrily looking at him from the bank, but they eventually wander away, and off he goes. And reconverting was kind of difficult, and he tried every trick he could, including writing little tracks. And he would have these tracks get passed out to local people. Mm-hmm. Some people, from what I read, were hired to assassinate him, but they were not very good assassins because they, he got away, shall mm-hmm. we say, okay? Mm-hmm. And the one book said he miraculously got away. I don't know the details, but uh, at one point he was physically assaulted. Uh, but by this time, the tracks were having some effect. And people did come back, and they came back into the church, and it became much more, shall we say, friendly to Catholics. Mm-hmm. In fact, it got so friendly that Bishop de Grenier was able to go up to this area and have confirmation, and he did 40 hours adoration up there. So this was quite a to-do. Now, around 1600, Bishop de Grenier decided he needed a coadjutor bishop, someone to help him with the diocese and also be the one in line to take his place when he passed away as he was getting older. And uh, he wanted it to be Francis de Sales, who was 30 years old, pretty young. So Francis goes to Rome, where he is examined by Pope Clement VIII, Cardinal Frederick Borromeo, the cousin of St. Charles, uh, Bellarmine, and another gentleman named Caesar Speronius. And it was quite an interview, and he does very well. He's, he's very calm, very quiet, answers all the questions, you know, with mm-hmm. not only erudition, but calmness. And they say, this is our man. Mm-hmm. So... He is now the uh, coadjutor bishop of the, of the Diocese of Annecy, and he continues with his work. At this point, he, he also was doing some writing, and we need to get to the fact that there was a woman whose name was Marie du Chastel, and she was a maid of honor of Catherine de Cleves. These are all quite well-to-do people. And just a little bit of an aside, these well-to-do families are kind of on the way out and are getting replaced by countries, not mm-hmm large families being yeah. in charge. So yeah. this is the change that's going on. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, this woman is married to a relative of Francis de Sales, and um, she's involved in a lawsuit, and she cannot really leave the area where she's living. And Francis becomes her spiritual director, and he writes for her a book called The Introduction to the Devout Life. It was published in 1609, and it hasn't been out of print since. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It is available anywhere. I mean, John, it's interesting. If you were to ask me the question, of all the spiritual classics, what read has the most practical value? I would probably tell you the introduction to The Devout Life, because it really reads like a a manual for spiritual direction. In this work, St. Francis de Sales addresses an invitation that very well might have seemed revolutionary at the time. In the introduction, 
St. Francis de Sales says, my intention is to teach those who are living in towns in the conjugal state at court. So it's every walk of life. The document with which Pope Leo XIII, more than two centuries after his death, was to proclaim him a doctor of the church, would insist on this very expansion of the call to perfection to holiness. And as we were talking before, John, this would in time impact Vatican II. Very important. And what lies under Vatican II? But the universal call to holiness and the ideal of a reconciled humanity that was expressed in the harmony between prayer and action in the world, between the search for perfection and the secular condition with the help of God's grace, which permeates the, the human being and without destroying him, purifies him, raising him to new heights, divine heights. This is what introduction to the devout life is all about. And it is very, very practical. Speaks to how we can take all of the concreteness and particularity of each day and elevate it to this ideal of holiness. He was a big converter of the lay person, the lay Catholic, to a holier Catholic life. And that's what this introduction to devout life is, and it does it very thoroughly in about 250 pages. You know, he begins the devout life by saying, you know, okay, mortal sin. We have to be very aware of mortal sin. Mm -hmm. And after we have to exercise it from our life, affection for sin. That's beginning at the basics. Mm -hmm. He talks largely about mental prayer. That should be a part of our daily to-do. Now, he's not, you know, you're busy. You're out there doing your secular stuff which is important, which has to be done, which keeps us fed. While we do this, we are still Catholics, and mental prayer and daily prayer and leading life without affection for sin, although those sins in the world are all over the place. Mm -hmm. Well, and as John Paul II said it, we don't bring our work into prayer, but our prayer into work. Yeah. Because in our work, it's just not what we do, but who we become. Yeah. He also wrote a book called Treatise on the Love of God, and my spiritual director told me that's about as good a book on contemplation and the spiritual life as you'll ever read. And I think he's probably correct. This is a little bit longer book, maybe about 400, 500 pages. But it is, uh, these are masterpieces. Yeah. Well, as Benedict said, you know, St. Francis de Sales' Treatise on the Love of God is really the summa of the mystical life. You right. Think about that, John. We were just talking about these towering figures and St. John of Avila and St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross and why St. John of the Cross is considered the mystical doctor. And yes, he had extraordinary writing that we draw from today. Benedict says this work on the treatise of love is the summa of the mystical life. Wow. I mean, striking. Yeah. And why? Well, the key point for St. Francis de Sales in this work is so we can talk about contemplation and action. We can talk about seeking perfection in the secular world. But if we're going to do this, we have to understand that while we have our natural inclination to sin, in our anthropology, we're just not body, but body and soul. We yeah. are destined for greatness, yes. but greatness comes from littleness. Ah. And so if we are going to achieve greatness, we must first become little, and by becoming little, we will see our need for perfection. Yeah. Okay, so for St. Francis de Sales, he says, if we are going to achieve contemplative ecstasy, and we've talked about contemplation a lot in this program, then we have to appreciate this littleness. And of course, what he contributes, and I love how he talks about this, John, is this kind of ecstatic activity. Uh -huh. We so often yeah. say, 
boy, wouldn't it be amazing to have this kind of mystical experience with God? And we, we think about it in the context of churches and chapels and so on and so forth. Okay, yeah, and that's where it belongs. When you go before the Blessed Sacrament, you know, and you pray and you are just looking at God and God is looking back at you, I mean, that is what contemplation is about. But he says it doesn't stop there. We can experience a kind of ecstasy in the world. And this is where he brings something original to the discussion, that we can experience this kind of ecstatic union, even in the world. And what does he call this, John? Joy. Yeah. Joy. This is joy. <laughs> joy yeah. is, is ecstatic union with God. Yes. It is the fruit of being in ecstatic union with God. There is a section in Treatise on the Love of God, which struck me. This is just a simple little paragraph or two, about two-thirds through. He says, don't take on too much. Mm-hmm. If you take on too much, you are somewhat listening to the evil one. Mm-hmm. Because you take on too much, and you're not going to get this stuff done. And you stop getting stuff done, discouragement comes in, and spiritual life declines. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people that, in my opinion, take on too much and you know are just too spread out. I mean, St. Francis de Sales was a very busy man. I mean, I don't know whether he followed his own advice or not. Yeah. But uh, he, uh, you know, that that was good advice for me to take on. And another little thing, the second order of priests after the Jesuits, there are more Jesuit priests than any other order. The second largest order is the Salesians, founded by St. Dom Bosco around, uh, oh, let's say around 1880, well after St. Francis de Sales died. But they call them Salesians after St. Francis de Sales. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, how many saints have we had that we see their impact hundreds of years later, even to the point where we have orders being named after them? It's so striking. I want to go back, John, to what you were speaking to earlier as it relates to, well, what we can call the demon of busyness, doing too many things at a time. You know, we like to pride ourselves in doing a lot of things, but in reality, as the point is made by St. Francis de Sales, not every good is a willed good. If that were the case, what would happen to all of us? For every person out there who wanted to do good things, well, they would be stretched so far that as you just spoke to it, John, they wouldn't be able to do any one of those things well. So God says to us, discern just not the good around you, but the willed good that you are called to contribute to. You see, we spend so much time focusing on tomorrow that we forget about today and how God wants to intervene in our life and bring about a deeper holiness. And so discerning the will good is so important. And you know, John, it is very easy to fall into this trap. I think it happens to a lot of uh, good faith-filled people. But we must remember that characteristic of Satan He is subtle. He seduces us to think that we have to do all of these goods. And then we begin to stretch ourselves so thin that, again, we don't do any of them well. And he is just in the background saying, ah, I've got him just where I want him, not doing anything well. Interesting point. Uh, You know, if he was a lion, he would have been noticed in a second. But if he's a snake, well, who sees a snake until it's too late almost? (laughs) Yeah. Another key point for us, John, and certainly this was at the heart of his own spiritual journey. It is something that I talked about off the top, and that is how he looked at freedom and its relationship to love. I want to read uh, from a passage uh, from a letter that he had written 
you know, St. Francis de Sales John had a close friend in one St. Jane de Chantal. Of oh, course, uh, this we, is I a forgot fa- to mention her. Yeah, yes. this, is a, this is a famous... Under uh, the Order of the Visitation yes, Nuns, still yes, around, yes. Yes, a, Christ, a famous Christian friendship, John. Uh, he wrote letters to her often while she was leading the Order of the Visitation Sisters. This is an excerpt from one particular letter. This is the rule of our obedience, which I write for you in capital letters. Do all through love, nothing through constraint. Love obedience more than you fear disobedience. I want to read that again. Love obedience more than you fear disobedience. I leave you the spirit of freedom, not that which excludes obedience which is the freedom of the world, but that liberty which excludes violence, anxiety, and scruples. You know, John, today we wish to claim a freedom in the name of being liberated from the world, even as St. Francis de Sales just talked about it. And we do so seeking peace in our lives because we are the final arbiters of peace. But in the end, what we miss is, well, we are not the final arbiters of peace. No, we are not. (laughs) Peace in of itself is to be in covenant relationship with God. And how do we enter into this peace, John? Well, through obedience. That is correct, Joe. Not through following my desires, which change from month to month, Mm -hmm. but obedience to who we truly and really are. Mm-hmm. and find out who that is, and you're not going to be all going off doing these rather silly things. You're not going to be going off taking too many opioids yeah. or having too many sexual relations or whatever, all the stuff that's going on in our secular world in the name of freedom, yeah. which isn't freedom. No, it's not. And, and I always go back to my own relationships with my children and how if they truly want to be free, become the best version of who God is calling them to be, they have to be obedient to their father because their father, as sinful as I might be, I'm going to have the best intentions and do everything possible for my children to, to mature and to grow as sons and daughters of God. Certainly part of this is going to be to help them come to better understand God. But in so far as the rules around the house and what they should or should not do, my wife and I have that in place that they might be more free, that they might not make a mistake and find themselves less free and getting themselves in trouble. We have law for a reason, John, because it establishes order. If we are disobedient to the law, what is going to happen? We're going to have chaos. We're going to have chaos. So freedom is tied to law. I always go to the analogy and going back to my oldest son, Colby, when he was learning to play the piano at the age of four, he went over to the keyboard and he just struck the keys I pose the question, is he free? Was he free to play the piano by just striking the keys? In a manner of speaking, yes, he was free to just strike the keys. But six years later, he is able to read music. And as a 10-year-old, he is amazing on the piano. Wow. So the question I pose, is he free (laughs) to play the piano? So I pose the question again, is he free to play the piano? And in this context, John, it is just not in a manner of speaking. No, he is free to play the piano. Why? Because he now understands the inherent rules of how to play the piano. He is obedient to the laws of music. 
and now he's free. That he's is saying. very well put, Joe, and that is exactly what freedom is. Mm-hmm. I would refer people to the, to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Section 3, where it talks about conscience and its correct formation. Mm. And you follow that, and you'll be able to play the piano of life. Yeah, amen. Yeah, what is our conscience? Huh? Our conscience is simply the law that is written on our heart. And so we subscribe to that law that is written on our heart. And oh, by the way, John, St. Francis de Sales talks about this in his treatise on the love of God. He says, we are born for greatness. We are. We are wired for God. And as we are created in the image and likeness of God, there is a law that is inscribed upon our heart. And by grace, by the divine, by the grace given to us in our divine sonship, we are inheritors of this law. And so we are made to form that law, develop that law, come to better understand what that law is all about, and how we might become in better understanding that law, the best version of who God is calling us to be, John. You know, earlier I was just talking about my children subscribing to the laws that Jack and I have established in the house. Well, we have to subscribe to God's law. And God's law is a law of love that he has etched onto our hearts. And if we're going to better understand this law of love, we would be well served, John, to read St. Francis de Sales, who is the doctor of charity the doctor of, of love. <laughs> if you want a beginning book, I can't think of a better one than The Introduction to the Devout Life. Mm. That is, it's a good read, you'll enjoy it, and it takes you right through some very interesting meditations. And by way of postscript, John, as I'm made to remember this, in The Introduction to the Devout Life, he gets into something that I don't know if we've ever talked about, and that's the importance of spiritual direction. Uh-huh. The importance of spiritual direction. Benedict Sixteenth said, oh, four or five years ago, that if you are serious about your baptismal vocation to just not live in God, but to exist for other, if you are serious about your baptismal vocation to live in holiness, then you will get a spiritual director, someone who can lead you to Christ. Often that person is a priest, if not a priest, someone who is trained in the spiritual sciences. I might recommend, John, to our listening audience, the website spiritualdirection.com. Spiritualdirection.com. That is a website that is certainly a part of Dan Burke's apostolate on spiritual direction and spiritual theology. I highly, highly recommend all of our listeners, John, to go to spiritualdirection.com because you will find a wealth of writings that really not only encourage spiritual direction, that are in many ways a response to the words of St. Francis de Sales as he speaks to the importance of spiritual direction. And he gets into very specifics in many ways. An introduction to the devout life is a manual for spiritual direction. He speaks about the importance of it, certainly. And Benedict XVI echoes the importance of this. So I just want to encourage all of our listeners to be thinking about this if they don't have a spiritual director. Did Colby have a piano teacher? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a good one, too. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, with that, John, we are out of time. Why don't we go ahead and wrap up with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.